There's a special place at number five Henry Bacon Drive, Washington, D.C. There's a black granite wall that is cutting deeply into the neatly pruned landscape of our National's Mall, our National Capitals Mall. It's a gaping wound. It's meant to look like this, a gaping wound in the landscape that extends for 493 feet And etched into this shiny black surface from top to bottom is a list of names. We actually don't have an exact number of names because it has changed over the last several years. It's about 58,276 names on this wall. They are the names of Americans who laid down their lives during the Vietnam War. Some enlisted, others drafted, most young, each with much more life to give. That wall has meant a a great deal to me ever since I visited visited it as a kid. I don't know of any other war memorial that has so successfully moved me. Hopefully you'll all get a chance to visit it someday, and if you do, I hope added to that blessing, you have the opportunity of seeing a few veterans of that war at that wall. If you do, you'll see them searching, scanning, maybe asking an attendant an attendant to climb a ladder for them to, to make a rubbing of one of their buddies' names who fought beside them and lost their life in that conflict. We had such a blessing recently when we were going through D.C. It was a, a father and son duo that we came across. I focused in on them most The elder, he was the one wearing the Vietnam uh, veteran hat, inches from the wall. Uh, The adult son stood with registry book in hand, squinting down at the alphabetical listing of the deceased to see which specific panel his father's friend that they were searching for, where was this name immortalized? And I'm not sure how long they had been at it, but I got to hear the father say, that's him, there he is. He was stretching up as far as he could. It was just out of his reach. But with that simultaneous action of reaching up to try to touch the name, the other hand reached down to his mouth where he was stifling a sob. His head hung under a weight that I will probably never feel in my life. And the vast majority of us and our security will probably never feel or never fully understand. No one. Absolutely No one in their right mind would stand at that wall, would see such a scene take place, and call that memorial, it's just a list of names. Nobody would do that in their right mind. Maybe I need to underline in their right mind. It is so much more, would you agree, than just a list of names. As I've prayed and prepared for a few weeks studying the totality of the book of Ezra, I have often come up against questions from other pastors who knew that I am preaching through Ezra. Some of you who have some honest, sincere questions, what are you doing preaching through Ezra? And honestly, some questions myself, what am I doing preaching through Ezra? Particularly, the questions have centered on what are you going to do when you get to Ezra chapter 2? All this chapter is, is a list of names I've asked of myself. Well, if all Scripture 
is inspired by God, and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, so that we can all grow into maturity, ready to do good works in this world, as Brother David preached last week. It would be wise for us to actually heed that and not discard Ezra chapter 2 as just a list of names. Ezra 2 is a memorial. It's not etched in black granite, but it ought to be. It's a memorial not to these men whose names are found in Ezra 2. It's a memorial to the God who moved and accomplished His will in their life. It's a great memorial. We read Scripture so selfishly, don't we? I read Scripture so selfishly. If, if you won't cop to it, I will. I'll confess. I read the Bible scanning its pages, perusing its verses, trying to find some truth that I can ascribe to my life. Right, Lord, I, I, I need encouragement today. I need a promise that I can cling to. I need you to fill me up with some truth that I can use to battle or to preach or to edify. And that's not all bad. That's a good thing to try to personally apply Scripture. I do believe that God's Word is personal. But if there's anything that the American church has been guilty of throughout the last century and a half, it is that we have made Christianity a very me-focused way of living. If that verse doesn't have implications to my life right now, that's not my life verse. That's not the verse I'm going to cling to. Oh, we do ourselves a disservice. We do Scripture a disservice when we treat it that way. So we will turn to Ezra and Ezra chapter 2 and we will merely speed read because there is no way in the world that those ancient names could in any way affect, influence, or help my walk with Christ today. There's just no way. How foolish. How foolish. That would be as dumb as standing at a war memorial and saying, yeah, I don't think any of this really affects me. One of those betrays a loose grasp on history and, citizen, grasp on history and citizenship. The other displays an utter disregard for the story of the Gospel. You might not personally know one name on that wall of that memorial, like that veteran that I witnessed had. You definitely don't personally know one person in the book of Ezra or in, the, in Ezra chapter 2, but that does not negate, hear me, that does not negate the value of life that you have been blessed with because of these individuals. You have benefited from those names on the wall and you have benefited from the names in this text. This morning. As I read Ezra 2 this week, I thought of Abraham. How would old Abraham have read Ezra chapter 2? Some of you have done your work on your family tree going back several generations. It, it astounds me, some of the work that y'all have done. That's amazing. I love it. But there is no one in here who can look forward into their family lineage, right? You can't draw your family roots. I, I don't know. What's the opposite of family tree? Can you picture senior citizen Abraham standing out in the desert one night talking with God? 
The Lord is promising, I will make you a great nation. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. Your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. The sands of the sea, they won't compare. You will have so many descendants, Abraham. And Abraham sinks down into the sand a little as he shifts his footing and he looks up to the night sky spattered with a host of bright lights and he cries out, but I don't have a son, Lord. How are you going to make me a great nation? How am I going to have descendants more numerous than the sands of the sea or the stars in the sky? How are you going to do that when I don't even have one son? I guarantee you that Abraham would read Ezra 2 with giddy delight as every tribe, every family, every name, down to even the animals listed in verses 66 through 67, each one a fulfillment of God's seemingly impossible covenanted promise to him. God always keeps his word. Abraham would have loved to have read Ezra chapter 2. We stand on the other side of the promise. Abraham, by faith, had to look forward to it all, but we look back in Scripture, and we see Ezra 2 for what it is, first and foremost, a record, a historical record of God's faithfulness. History. I went to Christian school, so you'll have to pardon me. History is his story. That was like day one, lesson one in history class. It is, from start to to finish. Each of the 125 names found within this chapter declares God's trustworthiness. So if you can't pinpoint a singular name to flesh out in your own personal study this week in the text, just look in awe at it as one whole fulfilled promise, a monument to the goodness of God. But honestly, I think we can do better than just seeing it from 30,000 feet in the air, just as some memorial on the ground. There is gold that is mined in these verses. Look at it categorically. You can divide this chapter into groups who are listed here. We have people coming back to Jerusalem listed, and some of them are categorized by family names. Others are listed by geographical regions from which they grew up in Jerusalem or in Judah. Zoom into Ezra chapter 2, verse 23. I think you can see a bit of that gold starting to glimmer. This is a short census-like entry in verse 23, which simply reads that 128 men from a region called Anathoth, I don't, I don't have a lisp, that's how you say it, I think, Anathoth, were returning to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. That is all that verse states. Honestly, we don't even have any of their names written down, and, and there's only 128 in number. They only represent 0.26% of those 50,000 who returned. What makes them so special, these 128, that I might mention them this morning? To answer that, you really have to go back 100 plus years to the craziest, might I say, most foolish real estate venture ever. It was crazy. It did not make sense. In Jeremiah chapter 32, Babylon had already begun to besiege Jerusalem. The walls are going to be torn down. 
the handwriting on the wall, it was essentially there. The whole country was in an uproar. It looked similar to the war zone pictures of this very region, which we have seen in the news this week. And in the middle of it all, as Babylon is knocking on Jerusalem's door or banging on it, God calls out to Jeremiah to do a very strange thing. Jeremiah is his prophet. And one day, God tells Jeremiah to purchase a plot of land in a war zone. Anathoth. I'm the least likely human being in this building to go out and purchase investment property. Uh, I cannot think of anything that I would want to do less. Uh, I've seen the headache that it can cause. Some of you love it. Some of you do it all the time. You're going to retire at age 40. Good for you, not me. I think we can all agree, no matter real estate mogul or not, buying land when an invading country is just about to conquer, that's probably the dumbest thing you can do. Can you imagine World War II era? But Mr. Hitler, I just bought this acreage. I have the papers right here. If he didn't care about the the border of Poland, a country, he's not going to care what kind of paperwork you can produce to say that this is your property. And so it is with Nebuchadnezzar. Jeremiah, go purchase a war zone in Anathoth. In the middle of a war, whenever the land is going to turn over to its enemies, God tells Jeremiah in Jeremiah 32, the latter part of verse 7, buy a field which is in Anathoth, for the right of redemption is yours to buy it. Jeremiah throws down 17 shekels of silver to buy the war-torn region, knowing full well that Babylon was just about to take it all over. As you read the chapter, you can obviously see that Jeremiah is confused, and I read a little bit perturbed at God for making him do such a thing or leading him to do such a thing. Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 24, Jeremiah is praying to God, and he says, Look, the siege mounds. They have come to the city to take it. And the city has been given into the hand of the Chaldeans who fight against it because of the sword and famine and pestilence. What you have spoken has happened. There, you see it. And you have said to me, O Lord God, buy the field for money and take witnesses. Yet the city has been given into the hand of the Chaldeans. God, are you kidding me? There is a famine. There is pestilence. I could use this 17 shekels of silver for my own interest, and you tell me to take this and buy a plot of land in a battle zone? God replies in verse 36. Now thus therefore says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city of which you say, it shall be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon by the sword, by the famine, And by the pestilence, behold, I will gather them out of all countries where I have driven them in anger. In my fury and in great wrath, I will bring them back to this place and I will cause them to dwell safely. They shall be my people and I will be their God. Then I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for the good of them and their children after them. Jeremiah Buy the land. I don't know what the saints in glory can see down here on earth, but I am convinced that the Lord 
when Ezra 2 comes about, calls over to Jeremiah and says, come over here. I want you to see this plot of land that you bought nearly a century before this, years after your own death, he's in glory, and I want you to see that 128 men of Anathoth saddling up, they are returning home, they are a testimony to who God is and what he does. Buy the land. We can even zoom into the text a little more to a key figure that honestly takes center stage in the book of Ezra. His name is Zerubbabel. We're introduced to him in verse 2 of this chapter, Ezra 2. It reads, those who came with Zerubbabel were Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Reliah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispar, Bigvi, Reham, and Bana. We do not think that this is the Mordecai and Nehemiah of later parts in the Bible. Those that have Um, those that come into the story of Esther or the story of Nehemiah. This is a different group of men. Right off the bat, you can tell that Zerubbabel is someone significant in this story, can't you? The whole chapter lists everyone after him because it says that they come with him. Zerubbabel's name literally means born in Babylon. And it is a strong reminder of God's people in captivity because as the story unfolds, you'll find that Zerubbabel is actually of the lineage of David. He is the rightful heir to the throne of Judah. Tolkien's going to have to excuse us because this is the first return of the king right here. Some of you non-nerds, let that go right over your head. We don't really get this because we only live in a time during sports dynasties, but for years, Zerubbabel has grown up in Babylon knowing he is the rightful king of Judah, and yet he is unable to return home. He cannot ascend the steps to his throne room because of the captivity going on in Babylon. This is his birthright to rule, to reign, to lead, but it had been snatched from his hands even before he was born. You see, the sins of his grandfather, Jehoiachin, they had built up in abundance so much before the Lord that one day God had had enough of Zerubbabel's grandfather's leadership. Jehoiachin was coronated as king at the age of 18 years old. And he was such an evil man that he only reigned three months in Judah before God had had enough and dethroned him. In Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 24, we have this record of what Jehoiachin would would suffer. The Lord says, As I live, though Kaniah, or another name for Jehoiachin, Jehoiachin, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet on my right hand, yet I would pluck you off. And I will give you into the hand of those who seek your life and into the hand of those who face you fear, the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and the hand of the Chaldeans. So I will cast you out, Jehoiachin, and your mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, And there you shall die. But to the land to which they desire to return, there they shall not return. Let me summarize what we just read there in Jeremiah. God says, I will rip your authority from you as if I were to just pluck off a signet ring. The sign of power, the king's signet, 
It was the, the stamp, is that which stamped the royal insignia on all official documents. And God is saying, no more. You will reign no more. You will have no more authority from me. And that's a sad curse. But the curse of, Jeho- of Jehoiachin is much worse than that. If you were to skip down in Jeremiah 22, you find in verse 30 that thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless. A man who shall not prosper in his days, for none of his descendants shall prosper sitting on the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. This curse is not just upon him, but it's upon his children and their children. He would not have a child to reign after him. If you know your history, sure enough, God's warning becomes true because Babylon sweeps in during the spring reckoning just three months into Jehoiachin's reign and Nebuchadnezzar arrests him, throws him into solitary confinement for 30 years. Jehoiachin? God meant what he said. For 30 years, you will be imprisoned by yourself. It's not recorded in Scripture, but Jewish tradition in the Talmud holds that it was here in prison that evil Jehoiachin actually repented and sought God. We don't know the particulars of that story, but we do know that when Nebuchadnezzar died, his son released Jehoiachin and gave him a role to play in Babylonian politics. It's obvious that the Lord restored Jehoiachin because in God's grace, he allows his grandson, Zerubbabel, born in Babylon, to return to his home. And what's more is that God lifts his curse upon Jehoiachin's family. Haggai, a contemporary prophet to all that's going on in the book of Ezra, he writes it beautifully in Haggai 2.23. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, or Jehoiachin's son, says the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, says the Lord of hosts. Isn't that, it's not just good irony. That's a good blessing. To grandfather Jehoiachin, God said through Jeremiah, I will pluck you off my finger like a signet ring and I will give you to your enemies. To his grandson, Zerubbabel, God said through Haggai, I will put you on as a signet ring and I have chosen you. What's even more beautiful is that Jehoiachin's repentance and Zerubbabel's returning to Jerusalem has a direct effect on us sitting here today. Direct effect. Take your Bible. Turn to another just a list of names. Matthew chapter 1. How in the world could Jehoiachin, who goes by like five different names in the Bible, how in the world Could Zerubbabel have a direct effect on you and your life? Well, in Matthew chapter 1, we have the lineage of Jesus, which solidifies that he is, in fact, who he claimed that he was, the Messiah foretold in the Old Testament, the root of Jesse, of the lineage of King David. And it reads in Matthew chapter 1, verse 11, Josiah begot Jeconiah, another name for Jehoiachin, and his brothers about the time when they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jehoiachin begot Shealtiel, and Shealtiel begot Zerubbabel. 
Zerubbabel begat Abiud, and Abiud begat El- Eliakim, and Eliakim begat Azor, Azor begat Zadok, Zadok begat Achan, and Achan begat Iliad, Iliad begat Eleazar, Eleazar begat Methan, and Methan begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. Now that's a signet ring, if you ask me. I will make of you a signet ring. Jesus. To him, the Father had given all power, all authority to rule and to reign. Paul uses this exact language of of ring uh, in Philippians 2 when he says that Jesus is the expressed image of the Father, the perfect and pure representation of of Him. And what did Jesus do with this power? Paul goes on in Ephesians 2 verse 7, and he says that He made Himself of no reputation, taking on Him the form of a servant, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted Him and given Him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those in earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the expressed image of God, and it comes to us through the signet ring of Zerubbabel for years of suffering and sin. This just a list of names has a lot more to do with us than what we ever thought possible. It's obvious, it obviously has special significance to our Jewish brothers and sisters. This is the record of God's faithfulness to bring His people home, but it is so much more than that. Hear me, church. It is His memorial of His plan to redeem all of mankind. It may start in Babylon, but it comes to fruition in Bethlehem, and it comes to fulfillment at the resurrection. Maybe I haven't convinced you yet. Give me one more chance. Zoom in again to Ezra chapter 2. This time, key in on verses 59 through 60. 63, excuse me. 59 through 63. Look at verse 59. And these were the ones who came up from Telmela, Telharsha, Cherub, Adan, and Emmer. But they could not identify their father's house or their genealogy, whether they were of Israel. Pause. You have to understand something about the Jewish people to feel the full weight of this sad passage that we just read. Lineage is everything to them. Everything. Lineage was what Zerubbabel clung to which gave him the right and authority to lead. Lineage was what every single one of them depended upon to detail where their plot of land would be whenever they got back to Jerusalem. Lineage separated the Levites into priestly responsibilities. And here, in verse 59, we are introduced to a segment of people who can give no record of their genealogy. 
They have no listing of their lineage that they can produce. There's no token passed down from generation to generation. There is no paperwork which they can produce to prove of what line they come or even that they are in fact Hebrew. That is devastating. That means not getting the land of their forefathers, the land that they had given up everything in Babylon to obtain. The picture here is they get to Jerusalem, they get to Judah, they are knocking on the broken down wall doors there, and somebody says, let me check the list. Mm, I don't see your name here. Can you prove who you are? That's sad. But for one group of people, this lack of paperwork is cataclysmic. Verses 61 through 62 tells us that there were priests who had actually been functioning in that capacity in Babylon under the assumption of their lineage. But here, they could not produce proof that they were, in fact, priests. Verse 62 says, These sought their listing among those who were registered by genealogy, but they were not found. Therefore, they were excluded from the priesthood as defiled. The reason that this news is more ruinous for priests than it was for the, others, uh, the other tribes, the other members of other tribes, is that Levi, those of the tribe of Levi, they were allotted no land. No land. They had no livelihood. They were to be sustained by their work in the temple and live off of the free will offerings of God's people who they served by working in the temple. To not be able to prove that I'm a priest, it meant... You are homeless, you are penniless, you are hungry. Verse 63 says as much. The governor said to them, these who were not found in the genealogy list, they should not eat of the most holy things till a priest could consult with the Urim and Thummim. Now, you say you're a priest. We have nothing to verify that with. Don't eat. We don't have time to get into it all, but the Urim and Thummim that is mentioned here is basically some special aid that the Lord blessed His people with in order to distinguish His will in a particular instance. I'm careful to call it an ancient magic eight ball, <laughs> but it comes closer to that than what you'd think. Except the answer was not left to chance. It was left to God's will. These would-be priests whose whole lives completely and totally hinged upon the answer that would have been found in the casting of the Urim and Thummim. It was up to the Lord and His divine answer to His people whether or not they would be accepted into the people of God. Quite honestly, some of you are a couple of miles ahead of me, quite honestly, every single one of us stands in this exact same position. We have nothing to show for ourselves. There are no merits to our name. There are no works that we can claim which can prove us accepted and counted among God's people. We stand before God hungry and penniless and homeless, but God has spoken. His will is known, and it's not through some ancient mysticism of Urim and Thummim. He has written it down sure and steadfast in his word. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says, the Lord is not slack.
slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but he is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The die has been cast. The straw has been drawn. The Urim and Thummim reveals to all who would come to repentance that though you You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Is that you this morning? That you stand before God and I can't prove anything. I am filthy before you, Lord. And yet he has spoken his will that all should be saved, all come to repentance. It is for you, to those who come to him. He says, you are mine. You are a royal priesthood. You are my child. We stand outside the people of God. He checks the registry and he finds our name. Our salvation is not dependent upon being able to produce the right paperwork. Aren't you glad? I'd have lost that years ago. (laughs) Nor who our family is or isn't. I love my family, but they're no one special on the grand scheme of history. Our salvation is found in the sure work of Christ on the cross. By it, we are counted among the people of God. A list of names. I wasn't going to go here, but I should. There is a list of names. Are you on it? Is your name found in the Lamb's book of life? Are you his? Or for one reason or another, do you stand on the outside? Friend, he he welcomes you in. What has been needed to be done has already been accomplished. Thanks for listening to New Hope Church's podcast. If you would like to listen to more content from our church, follow us at newhopefwbc.com.